So what I'm talking about today is reproductive travel, so people travelling for international gestational surrogacy arrangements. And why does this happen? It happens because in most countries of the world, gestational surrogacy, and in particular commercial gestational surrogacy, where this is done for an exchange of money, is banned. So in many countries of the world, you simply can't do it. Um, and so people travel in order to avail themselves of those services in jurisdictions where either it's legal, so in some st uh, states of the United States, in Canada, uh, commercial surrogacy is legal, um, or because in their home countries, even if it is legal, they may have difficulties in accessing surrogates. So, for instance, um, gay men in, in Ukraine are not legally allowed to have gestational surrogates, so they may actually move elsewhere for surrogacy. So it's a way in which you can circumvent local restrictions and international restrictions and regulations on surrogacy. And it's become quite an industry. It is, of course, linked to also the over-donation and the trade in over. Um, of course, many of the people who are undertaking surrogacy uh, may be older, there may be issues about um, ovarian reserves, or you may be looking at a gay couple who need uh, donated ova in order, in order to have gestational surrogacy. So those two industries are very much overlapping. Now, uh, Marsha Inhorns uses the term repro-hubs to talk about places that have become very popular for this industry. So destination countries where people will go for gestational surrogacy and other forms of assisted reproduction. She's got a relatively new book, I think it's a couple of years old now, on Dubai and people travelling to Dubai for assisted reproduction but not for surrogacy. The current sort of hot spots of this trade are of course uh, the United States where it's been a long established trade, particularly you've probably heard about the trade in California. Um, Canada, Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan is starting up as a, as a, a destination as well. Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, particularly for ova donations in South Africa. Thailand, and I've put Thailand, Laos, and I'll explain why I'm sort of just grouping those together shortly. Malaysia is also starting to become a, a destination people are looking at. And still some states of Mexico, some states of Mexico have banned the trade, uh, but it is still possible to do something in parts of Mexico. So what we're looking at in this industry is really how these different elements of biological reproduction, now with assisted reproduction, how you can divorce uh, these various elements and segment biological reproduction and kinship. These are things which used to go together. You know, they used to be something that all went together. And now, essentially, you can disassemble them. And with that segmentation, allows you to have an industry that uh, can provide those different parts of biological reproduction. So when Biao asked me to speak, he said, oh, you know, he's written a thing here about reproduction migrations in Asia Pacific. And so um, I thought, well, the question that I might think about today is what really then is the relationship between mobilities, reproduction, and then these exchanges in value that take place in this industry, in these international surrogacy arrangements? So that's what I'm going to try to tease out today, um, and we'll see how successful I am at doing so. Firstly, 
a bit of background. Uh, <coughs> who goes over for international surrogacy? Now, one thing about this industry is there's enormous range of uh, rumours, sensationalism, everything else. So <coughs> you, you find highly sensational stories about international surrogacy. But the actual, when you talk to people who are doing this, you're often talking about people who are desperately wanting to form a family, have had disastrous reproductive histories, often have been undertaking IVF themselves for many, many years, um, and, and really feel like this is their last resort to form a family. So in the book I talk about people who travel with the best of intentions. Most of them are absolutely lovely people, and they, they want to form a family. So, for example, Elise, who I interviewed in Thailand, when she was, just, uh, she was picking up her second child through international surrogacy. Her history was one of six failed cycles of IVF in Australia. She'd had an ectopic pregnancy and several miscarriages. She had tubal blockages, endometriosis, adenomyosis, um, and so there was just no way that she would be able to carry gestate a child. Um, she had investigated doing legally what's called altruistic surrogacy in Australia. So in Australia, surrogacy is possible, but it has to be without any payment whatsoever. So all you can do, it's even less than in the UK. In the UK, you can do compensated surrogacy. In Australia, you literally have to provide every receipt, and people usually only, it's only up to about $3,000 in receipts that get covered. So it is very much an act that has no financial benefit for the woman undergoing the surrogacy. So she investigated doing altruistic surrogacy in South Australia, but as you can imagine, uh, it's actually quite difficult. You're not allowed to advertise for surrogates, and it's actually quite difficult to find someone who will do that for you. So that was ruled out. Some friends had offered, but they medically weren't fit to carry a baby. So that was ruled out as possibilities. And it was, in fact, her mother who found out about surrogacy in Thailand and urged Elise to uh, try there. She wasn't aware of there being any other options in Australia. So when um, I spoke to her, she was picking up her next child. And so she'd had a second child through surrogacy. And she said, it's really hard to explain in words, but it's a feeling of absolute love and gratitude towards her surrogate that no money and no words could ever describe. It's just amazing. And I mean, every time she sees the daughter, she gets tears in her eyes and sees our little girl growing up. I set it up on Facebook. So we talk to each other by private message and she translates. Obviously, she types in Thai and translates it to English and then I type in English and translate it to Thai. I don't know if we've got any Thai speakers here, but if you've ever tried to use Google Translate, you probably realise that those translations can be a little bit odd. Um, so we were having a bit of a laugh about some of the conversations she'd had. So it's a very limited sort of exchange that they can do through this. Um, she hadn't realised that Thai sort of, uh, the way Thai works and had some very bizarre ideas about what was being said. Um, but, uh, but she's trying to maintain some sort of a relationship with one of the surrogates. One surrogate didn't want any relationship and they basically lost contact, but the second surrogate, um, they're trying to maintain some form of contact with her. 
just another case example of the sort of people that we're talking about, the lives that we're talking about. Um, Peter and Ben were a gay couple, about 40 years of age. Uh, it took them six years to decide to undergo international commercial surrogacy, and they've been together 17 years, they've always wanted children. Uh, they had looked into <coughs> options for fostering and options for adoption, but found that in Australia that was very limited. Um, and again, uh, would be very time consuming and unlikely by the time you know, it all got arranged, they were likely to be too old to adopt anyway. Ben also wanted a biological child, and this is the theme that runs through this, is this imperative people have to have a biologically related child. He knew about surrogacy because his brother had had a surrogacy arrangement in India, and it was still legal there. Um, and it closed down in about 2013 for gay couples, um, and also Australian couples had been in a number of controversies, so India effectively got closed off. So then they investigated Thailand. They'd actually moved interstate within Australia in order to ensure the legality of their overseas arrangement because where they lived in Australian Capital Territory, uh, going overseas for an international commercial arrangement is illegal. So this couple had actually moved to um, a different state so that it could be legal and uh, later on they moved out to a rural area. So often to ensure the legality, people will also be moving around within their, their own countries to ensure that they don't uh, impinge on regulations. When I asked them about it, I said, well, you know, you could have had a surrogacy arrangement in Australia or a, an informal arrangement with a lesbian couple or, you know, it's... He said, well, it's clearer. We like the idea of a commercial arrangement to us because it means that the ongoing arrangements were going to be clearer for all parties involved. Whereas we thought that the non-commercial kind of arrangements with someone who you'd only just met didn't really mean it was going to be secure in the future. So we'd heard of it, and certainly some people we know who had relationships fostering through lesbian partners who were friends of theirs. They said it had turned very mucky, it had got very complicated emotionally, and so they actually preferred to have a very distant, anonymous relationship. No no possible future kinship uh, ties or complications. So they saw commercial surrogacy as a, as a boon for them. Yeah. Um, if I'm going too fast, please let me know. And if you've got a question at any stage, please feel free to just stop and, and ask, because I'm covering a fair bit of ground here. Um, in my research, I look at the development of this model of uh, commercial international surrogacy in Southeast Asia, and I call it a disruptive model. And there I'm referring to the idea of a disruptive industry. So things like you know, Uber, or you know, that, that disrupt these existing business models of how things are done. Um, and this is a, a characteristic of post-Fordist capitalism, essentially. So, what I argue in the book is that with the opening up of commercial surrogacy in India, we got a new model of ways of doing surrogacy. And it was this highly aggressive entrepreneurial way in which it was organised and managed that was really quite different to what was happening at the time in places like England, in Israel, and in the US, which really were some of the uh, sort of sites of most surrogacy activity at that time. 
And that this disruptive model really broke apart the much more bespoke, slow, very carefully regulated models in these other locations. And it opened up surrogacy to a whole new market of people. It was very affordable, it was quick, and it was, to the la a large extent, uh, pretty much unregulated, or very, it had very limited regulation. So what were the characteristics of this? Well, there was a readily available pool of surrogates. So rather than having to wait for several years to find someone, uh, companies in India could provide you a list of women who were ready to be surrogates. Not only were they ready, but they were actually prepared. So um, women would be cycled with hormonal injections, ready so that their endometriums would be ready. At any given point, you'd have at least two or three women who could carry a pregnancy. So um, there was also different parts of this model. You could request to have multiple surrogates. You could um, buy package deals, which guaranteed that you'd have a take-home baby. So they'd do several cycles and use different surrogates if necessary, guarantee your baby. Um, the Indian government was really complicit in this. They set up their own surrogacy visa, a special visa for couples coming for surrogacy. And of course, you had models of surveillance and monitoring of the women and the pregnancies with surrogacy homes as part of the, the company's services. So women would live apart from their families for the term of the pregnancy, apart from their own children, apart from their husbands, and be monitored by uh, the agency. Now, I must apologise for the level of uh, text on there, and probably people at the back, I, mean, I can't even read this, but anyway. What I'm doing in this is, is essentially just doing a, a comparison between uh, what were the regulated models around at the time and what happened with this disruptive model, uh, this new way of managing surrogacy. Essentially what it did was um, it placed the surrogates as, and Catherine Walby talks in her book on clinical labour, it places them essentially as subcontractors. So agencies would subcontract women and could set it up so that intended parents could, within a year, you know, I've spoken to couples who basically from the moment they decided and within a year they had a baby in their arms. Incredibly quick arrangements. Um, usually uh, in regulated models, the intended parents, so that's the people who are commissioning the surrogacy, would meet the surrogate, would have some contact. Often, particularly in the Indian clinics, it was a completely anonymous arrangement. Um, the possibilities for communicating directly were very limited. Uh, there were often language differences, cultural differences, which made them impossible. Uh, contracts within regulated surrogacy often has an option for a natural birth. In this option, no risks were taken. It was always a caesarean birth for the mother. And long-term relationships are pretty rare in uh, these types of uh, disruptive arrangements. Of course, in some cases, the surrogates don't want a relationship, and same with the intended parents, so it's, it's purely up to their life. In some cases, there was no possibility of a relationship, in some cases there was, but usually it doesn't happen. Is there any questions about that very tiny text there? So we're going to end up with eye damage.
to put it in another way, reproduction became a very complicated affair. Um, and these are all the people that are involved in an international surrogacy arrangement. Uh, so there'd be a clinic, there'd be a facilitator or surrogacy agency, and the facilitator really acts as the broker and mediates all these other arrangements. So you might have a separate person, so the, the round circles of people and the others are pretty much all companies. So you'd have an over-donor usually, in many cases, or it could be the over from the intended mother, but if they required an over-donor, you'd have an over-donor separately and you had a surrogate here. And then you had all these other people involved as well to make this happen. Um, so insurance companies, hospitals were involved, host governments, uh, the intended parents' embassy had to be involved, uh, surrogacy brokers, separate to the clinic, lawyers, and actually of all the people in this arrangement, the lawyers tended to make the most money. Um, travel companies, airlines, so this was an industry involving a whole range of different players, all of whom were profiting from the relationship between surrogates and intended parents and the fetus in between. So uh, I turned trying to do ethnography of, in this situation as, a, as following the fetus rather than following the people, um, as Marcus used to talk about it, because uh, there's so many players and what's happened now is if you can imagine this industry cut through by geographical lines, these separate parts could be in different countries. So just to complicate things further, what's happened is that all of these parts don't occur in a single location anymore, but are cut through by geographical boundaries. So if we try to think about migration and mobilities, and this form of uh, international surrogacy. What are we talking about? We're talking about mobile capital. Um, because people, the only people who can do this have to be able to mobilise a certain level of both economic capital and social capital to be able to move. Um, you need mobile people, so there's a mobility of surrogates across this industry. I'll talk about that a little bit more shortly. There's a mobility of overdoners and also of embryos and owned gametes. They can move both internally within countries. So, for instance, uh, Christina Weiss has done a beautiful PhD which is looking at the internal migration of women from parts of uh, Russia to St. Petersburg to form part of, you know, to, to act as surrogates in St. Petersburg. And of course, those routes often mirror the internal migration routes for education, for work, um, and uh, so those rural, urban migration routes. So you've got internal migration, and then what I talk about as hybrid arrangements where women are moved across jurisdictions in order to partake of uh, surrogacy. I'll talk about that, I'll explain that shortly. You also see in this industry the movement of technologies, um, expertise, um, management models. So we started to see this Indian model of doing surrogacy moved to Nepal, then when that closed down to Thailand, and that closed down to Cambodia, 
when that closed down, it's in Laos now. So we see this movement of those models, and we also see the mobility of staff. So if you go to, to clinics in Ghana, you will meet Indian doctors who have moved their international commercial arrangements to Ghana because they can no longer do them in India. So they fly in and fly out. So they'll schedule a whole range of women to do embryo transfers on the same day, fly in, do the embryo transfers, fly out again. So there's all these migrations taking place to create a baby. Now Michal Naman, uh, whose work is primarily on overdonations, has coined the term repromigrations, where essentially she's recognising these over overlaps between these movements for reproduction and other forms of migration. She's looking at overdonors uh, in Romania for Israeli couples and the movement of over across international borders. So I'll just make the point here that often this is couched as uh, neoliberal choice. So whenever you, you talk about this industry, if you look online, it's all about people's choice and freedom and reproductive freedoms. But in fact, as you saw from that other diagram, when people enter into this industry, they're actually becoming enmeshed in a very complex assemblage a very complex industry with lots of players, all of whom are making various levels of profit out of these exchanges. Um, and are often being, their choices are actually being, uh, well, I, I call those facilitators sort of architects of choice. They get pushed into certain decision lines all the way through. So intended parents like to see themselves as empowered and making choices about reproduction, but in fact, once they enter the industry, they often become very vulnerable and liable to be forced into certain choices they may not wish. If you recall the baby gammy case, does anyone remember that case? An Australian couple were accused of uh, leaving a child with Down syndrome, so they had twins, they left a child with Down syndrome in Thailand and were accused of having taken the little girl home with them to Australia but left um, the little boy, Yami, in Thailand. That became a huge controversy, and that was not the only case. So there's been a whole series in all countries. So in India, it's that there were children left stateless, and eventually the Indian government said, okay, we're not doing, I mean, we're, we're just not doing international surrogacy anymore. Um, then Indian women started to move over the border to Nepal, um, and then eventually after the earthquake, that industry started to close down. Thailand, people started going there, then the baby gammy case and a military coup effectively put a stop to that part of the industry. Cambodia, again, it lasted for maybe about 18 months in Cambodia as an industry, and then the Cambodian government issued uh, a statement that international, that commercial surrogacy was not legal. So often these locations are ones which had no pre-existing regulation, which is precisely why the industry's moved there. And then eventually the government catches up and decides that it doesn't want it because there's often abusive, you know, exploitative relationships revealed and closes it down. But this industry is so flexible um, that within, overnight, they will have moved to another location. So that's effectively what, what happens. Um, and, and it's still happening. So we're just waiting for layoffs to, to close down, effectively. Um, is that... Answer. Yeah, I was just talking about it. Sure. 
So part of the way in which the industry has responded to these closures and these legal uh, difficulties is they've come up with a new model called hybrid models. And that's actually a term used within the industry, hybrid arrangements. And what these involve is, again, the segmentation and moving whichever part of that, that chain of, uh, uh, of relationships across different borders in order to circumvent restrictions. So, what do I mean? At the moment, uh, commercial surrogacy is illegal in Thailand. And surrogacy is only supposed to be available for local couples uh, who have been married, heterosexual couples who have been married at least, I think they have to prove they've been married for three years. So that's what the law says. So now, what happens is Thai companies will get Laotian migrants um, and move them in the past and, and still to a certain extent to Cambodia or to Laos and whilst all the work, all the medical work is done in Thailand, the embryos can be transferred in a clinic in Laos because that's actually a fairly straightforward procedure. So the lab work, all of that happens in Thailand but then the woman is moved across to Laos, as is the embryo. The embryo transfer takes place there. Then the woman comes back, hopefully pregnant. She will remain in Thailand and may give birth in Thailand, or she may give birth in China, or she may give birth in Singapore, depending on what legal arrangements are required for the citizenship of the intended parents. So these arrangements are such that they effectively circumvent the legal regulations. It's not illegal for a foreign woman to give birth to a foreign baby in Thailand. How could it be? Um, she's not a Thai citizen. It doesn't matter. You can't tell women moving across borders if they're pregnant. So as far as the Thai government's concerned, this is simply a foreign woman giving birth in their hospitals. And that's part of the international medical travel industry which Thailand heavily supports. They make money out of it. So companies are getting really good and you can, some of the multinational companies, they, on their websites, will state, we can make arrangements in Ghana, Ukraine, Russia, Thailand, Laos, wherever you want, US, depending on your needs. And you can explain what country you're from, what citizenship's required, and they will help arrange the movement of gametes, the movement of donors. So you may have a Ukrainian donor. Um, so a Ukrainian egg gets moved. You might bring a surrogate from, where will we get a surrogate from? Kazakhstan. You could have your embryo transfer done in Laos. And then if you wanted, that woman can then give birth in China. And as long as you have done your paperwork correctly, you'll probably be able to end up with a child who could live in China and be recognised as a Chinese biological citizen. I don't know about the, the city registration, might be a bit more tricky, but... So that's what it's become, this game of moving people around and moving products around, so it's almost impossible to recognise. Um, another example is the US and Canada. Australians, for instance, until recently, Canada's just changed its laws. Canada in... Canada unlike the US, was defined as having altruistic surrogacy. So for Australian citizens from New South Wales, ACT, and um, Queensland, 
They're not allowed to do commercial surrogacy overseas. Those states brought in extraterritorial laws to stop people doing that. But they could do altruistic surrogacy overseas. So Canada became very popular because it was technically altruistic in their law. So what they would do was contract a, a Canadian sur uh, surrogate, fly to Canada, do all the work there. Then the Canadian surrogate would fly to the US because there's some labs there that have very good success rates. They would do the surrogacy arrangement there, so the IVF, the assisted reproduction, all the lab work would be done in the US. And then the Canadian surrogate would go back to Canada to take part, uh, their national health system is very good, and meant that she could get free medical care during her pregnancy, which made it much more affordable than having a United States surrogate who, for whom you know, that medical costs of pregnancy are very, very high. So she could um, then give birth in Canada, and of course Canada and Australia, that was a relatively easy relationship for arranging citizenship. So even in countries like the US and Canada, you see these hybrid models um, effectively to make surrogacy more affordable and to make it legal for people. And I've already mentioned that uh, fly-in, fly-out medical staff, so embryologists are a rare resource, good embryologists. So we see them moving around the world to different clinics. Um, so they'll be spending a couple of weeks at a clinic in one country and move to another country with a sister clinic and work there for a couple of weeks. And they will simply organise embryo transfers and the lab work accordingly to the schedules of these embryologists arriving. Uh, one of the things I argue in the book is not so much that these result in exploitative relationships. I make a distinction between ideas of exploitation and vulnerability. What I think happens in this industry is not so much that every relationship is exploitative, but rather this industry creates vulnerabilities. And it creates vulnerabilities for everybody involved. And then it depends on the particular context, the particular setting, the circumstances, and class and uh, socioeconomic structural factors, the degree to which a person is made vulnerable in these arrangements. So um, that's one of the ads for New Genetics Global Limited. Um, talking about uh, being a leading surrogacy agency in, in Laos. Um, so there's companies, multinational companies like this one, like New Life, um, and they have sort of little sub-clinics, not really clinics, more just agencies in a number of countries, and then they can arrange surrogacy wherever you need to be. So effectively all you need to be to be a broker in this is a computer line, an internet connection, and a bit of a social network. And you can operate out of any country. Usually these companies are also registered in a different country, again, to avoid legal uncertainties and malpractice suits and all the rest of it. So um, Australian companies will actually be registered in Hong Kong, for instance. Uh, there's another one that's registered in Vladivostok. Uh, so it just keeps things, you know, a little bit more confusing for the lawyers. So here's an example of a Laotian surrogate I spoke to in Thailand um, in, was this, 2018? Um, so Thailand banned international surrogacy in 2015, so just to give you an idea, it's still going on. Aya, uh, she was 25 years old, and when I spoke to her, she was four months pregnant for a Melbourne couple. 
Um, she hadn't met the couple, but I think she'd had some contact over Skype. Um, she has already a four-year-old son. Uh, and her story is one, like many Laotian women in Thailand, that she first migrated to Thailand when she was 12 um, to work in restaurants. And her family is a fairly large one, uh, so there's seven children in her family. And as a daughter, she was expected to earn money to help support the family, so she, she went to Thailand and worked in a restaurant. So she'd been in Thailand for many years, and the agent got to know her through a Laotian relative, because people from the northeast of Thailand are actually Lao speakers, so there's often family links between the two countries. Um, and so her friend in Lao uh, knew this woman's family, knew she was in Thailand, and they made contact. And so she was now undertaking services. Again, she was working with a Thai Australian company. She had her embryo transfer in Cambodia, was going to undertake the birth in Thailand, and then take the baby back to Laos and do exit procedures with that baby out of Laos. She said she was very happy to do surrogacy for the parents and very happy to be able to build them. When I asked her about it, really, it, it, she saw this as, in very pragmatic terms as a means of making some money. She wanted to build a house for her parents um, in Vientiane, and she was going to earn about almost 6,000 US dollars, which is a lot of money in Laos, um, to build a house. So she was very happy with this arrangement. Uh, just to let you know, she did successfully give birth and the baby is now back in, in Melbourne. So these are the sorts of people who in Thailand are still undergoing surrogacy. Um, a little bit of very up-to-date news. So Lao, of course, still has no regulations in place. Um, there's currently Thai, Laotian and Vietnamese women who travel back and forth for embryo transfers. And there's at least four surrogacy agencies which are very open about operating out of Laos. So one facilitator I spoke to, she charges about $32,000 per surrogacy arrangement. She said she's doing about 60 a year. Um, so, but that seemed a little bit cheap because I know from research with intended parents that the average amount of money they're spending is about $56,000 Australian. So, so what's that, about £28,000? So hers is a bit on the cheap side, so I'm not sure that I fully think that that's uh, true, but anyway. Um, she actually also is a part owner in a clinic, so she's taken the next step. Not only has she her agency, but she also, with a doctor, has teamed up and part owns a medical clinic in Vientiane um, to do embryo transfers. Now, what's been happening? Uh, in 2017, there were six women arrested on the Laotian border, suspected of going over for embryo transfers. Um, they weren't actually charged with anything, so it wasn't <coughs> illegal to go across the border. Um, in 2017, there was a man charged with the illegal importation of gametes, so he was caught with a nitrogen cylinder um, with various sperm in it uh, going over the border. And so what he got charged with was you know, lack of paperwork for those gametes. Um, but we see that the surrogacy industry is now becoming uh, quite well known for Chinese couples. And the agents I've been talking to in 2017 were saying that 60% of their trade was for Chinese couples. So since the opening up um, of 
the Chinese one-child policy, uh, Chinese couples who are older require surrogates to have a, a second child, and there's enormous demand now to come to Southeast Asia for surrogacy. There's always been Chinese demand to go to the US, but that was only for very wealthy Chinese. Um, Southeast Asia makes it much more affordable for Chinese couples. So we see in April 2018 a very famous case. Um, a child was born to grandparents posthumously. The couple had died in a car accident. Four years later, the embryos that they had, freeze, had frozen in China were transferred in Laos and then that surrogate went back to China and gave birth in China. Um, so that was quite a controversial case, but really highlighted Lao as a destination for the Chinese market. Um, other hybrid suppliers include uh, Cambodia, even though it's illegal, we still see surrogacies taking place there with Cambodian women who often don't know what the law is. Um, Vietnamese women, Vietnam has just opened up local surrogacy arrangements for the first time and one suspects uh, there's always been a movement of Vietnamese women across these borders for surrogacy and uh, no doubt this opening up will probably result in some more international arrangements there. And Malaysia is starting to open up, it's certainly uh, about four clinics are advertising surrogacy arrangements in Malaysia now. So recent cases in Vietnam, uh, my Vietnamese PhD student sent me, this is like very hot off the press, that there were eight women caught on their way to China the other day. Um, who had been paid between six and eight thousand US dollars um, and they were going on their way to give birth in China. Um, and in Cambodia recently, 40 women in two different cases were arrested. And what's rather disturbing in this case was that 32 of them were told that if they kept the babies, they, could, they, they wouldn't be arrested and they'd be let go on bail. So there's some interesting politics going on there. Right, how are we going for time? I don't know. Okay. Um, Please just yell at me. So, um, what we can talk about then in this industry across Southeast Asia is that there's certainly continuities between this clinical labour of surrogacies and all these other forms of intimate labour and migration throughout these service industries and sex industries within the domestic migration and domestic labour markets and within the marriage migration market that these do, I think Catherine will be, um, that link between post-fortis capitalism is certainly quite acute when we look at this particular industry. But it's also about this intersection between labour and intimate labour, these intersections between production and social reproduction. And one of the things that we see in this sort of intimate labour is that it's not just money that's being transferred, but all these affective relationships, all these intimate relationships. Um, and as we know from uh, earlier work on the global chain of care, this intimate labour remains a, 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 an important source of livelihood for women uh, around the world in late capitalism. So Catherine Walby has described how body tissues or the body itself can become productive of value both in terms of their augmentation of human health, but also through these creation of these trades. And of course, this is drawing upon Nicholas Rose's work. And we've seen that um, on work on transnational adoption, um, I've got a couple of quotes there from Anne Agner Most, which I'm probably pronouncing correctly. 
Um, that capitalism's focus on the private sphere becomes expressed in the economy of desire that achieves its completion through a transnational circuit of exchanges. And I think that really does sum up what's happening within the transnational surrogacy industry. And she suggests that we do need a theory of transvaluation that can bridge these various circuits, these economies of desire that are, that are creating this, this trade. And she notes that this is um, complexly stratified, uh, stratified, or stratified, stratified both within and across national borders, and across class divides, across economic uh, inequalities. And we can also say across ethnic lines. So, because I am a bear of little mind, I like to visualise it as this. We can think about this trade as a circuit of, so surrogacy is somewhere there in the shadowy middle, and we have these circuits of economic value, of biological values, and of effective values operating within this industry. And they're crossing over and we're getting exchanges between these in the middle. Now I might point out that of course the visual representation makes it look very flat and it isn't. We can see across here we could have geographical divides and also these lines are very blurry. Nothing's very black and white in there. So I'll talk about this shortly but but that's just a little visualisation, a visual representation uh, to try to think about uh, how I'm trying to represent this industry. So let's have a look at this. So, biovalue. In international commercial surrogacy, it depends upon the ability to mobilise and extract reproductive capacities from healthy, hopefully fairly young, Fertile, so women of proven fertility. So really, um, a woman's reproductive capacity becomes a source of bio-value that can be exchanged. It allows women to convert their limited fertility, so women's fertility starts to drop off once they're 27. By the time they're 35, uh, they've only got about a 20% chance of falling pregnant, so it's a very limited thing. Um, but it gives them an opportunity, whilst they're young, to convert that into economic capital. And literally within this industry, people, parents will talk about that they chose a woman with a triple lining. That they specifically asked the agency to find them a woman with a triple lining. And what they're referring to there is um, the thickness of her endometrium. So a woman with a very thick triple lining, high quality endometrium, is very likely to fall pregnant. So women are judged and stratified according to how good they how well they respond to the drugs to stimulate their endometrial lining. Two thicks, no good. Two thins, no good. And a perfect triple lining, that's what you want. And so I have intended parents who actually said, well, we, I know it sounds sort of bad, but you know, we did request a, a triple lining, you know, a triple lining. What they're talking about is a surrogate, a young woman who has a particularly fertile endometrium. Um, now, of course, how bodily value, and, and we know this from uh, Nicholas Rose's work, how this bodily value is recognised is very complexly um, related to historical relationships, uh, colonial relationships, 
socioeconomic stratification, race, ethnic privilege, and also citizenship status. And elsewhere I've uh, tried to write about how citizenship is actually crucially mobilised in all of this. So we can see that a Laotian surrogate is worth less than a college-educated Oxford graduate um, as a surrogate. Um, the normal fertility of subaltern women in the northeast of Thailand is usually disparaged. So we have populations of women in India, women in Thailand, who normally nobody wants them to have children. And they've been the target of contraceptive campaigns, they've been the target of family planning population control campaigns. Their fertility, their hyperfertility, has been devalued. Now, those same women are being mobilised into an industry where that hyperfertility is actually valued and they can mobilise it to economic purposes. So we see that through this industry, something that was devalued can actually get a positive value. Likewise, for infertile intended parents, um, their biological status as infertile and unable to have children actually is mobilised through this industry, put them in another destination country and they're a source of economic value and market value. So something which previously, if you spatially relocate it, it gains in value. The second circuit that's happening within this industry is that of effective value. I mean, it's literally about the value of children. Um, the industry, the way it's promoted, uh, really mobilises these effective values. So family sentimentality, um, the joy of having a child, um, the local moral values around motherhood, um, gift discourses, historical discourses of motherhood and nurturance are all used to justify and also socialise everybody within this industry. And we have work uh, by Amrita Pandey which very beautifully looks at the socialisation of Indian surrogates and how it draws upon local ethical notions, local Hindu mythology. Um, and in my own work I've looked at how within Thailand uh, the notion of making karma, making merit through motherhood was mobilised by the industry. So women would literally see being a surrogate as a positive, a positive act which created karma for themselves. Elsewhere, uh, Heather Jacobson has spoken about the gift discourse in the US and strong Christian values uh, that surrogates express about the giving a gift of life to another couple. So we see this mobilisation of effective discourses as well. Um, and the industry recognises that this is intimate labour. It's always talking about the care uh, that a surrogate gives. Um, and the, but then it's also trying to distance it from the emotional entanglements that that care involves. So there's a tension in the industry around these notions of a surrogate's nurturing an embryo, but then able to give the child to another couple. Um, and of course, it is productive of effective value. Uh, children, is, you know, the obdurate fact of this industry is that children are being born uh, with all the joy and the love that that involves. Um, and this reproductivity, of course, remains a very valued norm in most states. And as Brian Turner's talked about, reproductivity is very much linked with ideas of active citizenship as well. And we see this in partly in uh, gay parenthood as well. So the marriage equality movement has linked in, uh, in Australia very particularly, 
gay surrogacy has become a very important means by which people are asserting the value of their relationships, the fact that, that uh, queering the family is becoming normative, and uh, so in a sense, again, this active citizenship of uh, people through reproductive earning. Then finally, I've talked a little bit about the, the raw money involved. So there's an enormous circulation of money to set up clinics. <coughs> Facilitation businesses don't cost much to set up, but clinics do, which is why most of the clinics in Thailand remained in Thailand. All the equipment's in Thailand, and they simply do a little quick embryo transfer in Laos. That's not an expensive clinic to set up. But all the embryo work is done in Laos and Thailand. Australian companies own uh, PGD and assisted reproduction, so embryology labs in Thailand. There's all sorts of international links with this money, these circuits of money as well, uh, in this industry. We see direct foreign investments, there's the purchase of equipment, medications are very expensive, you've got staff salaries, lawyers making a lot of money out of it, visa fees, airfares, accommodation. Um, and we see within the industry specific economic amounts attached to twin pregnancies, to the loss of a uterus if there's a problem, to um, miscarriages. So uh, in contracts you'll see you know, the loss of a uterus uh, in one case would give the surrogate would be allowed compensation of 1,500 US dollars. So if she some mishap lost her uterus. There's a price put on the death of the surrogate. There's a price put on the death of uh, neonates. And um, of course, through all of this, uh, every part of this industry is earning export dollars, and the average intended parents in Australia are costing, it's costing them roughly 75 to 80,000, and the average price overall, so that's about $56,000 US the surrogacies in Asia. Uh, the surrogates in Southeast Asia report on average that they're earning about $8,000 at that level. So uh, finally, where I'm at with this at the moment is uh, that, I mean, of course, these, these sorts of relationships could, could uh, be involved in all sorts of industries. But in surrogacy, um, you can conceptualise surrogacy sitting in the middle of these circuits of value. Um, and that these can be local, but also can cross international borders. And they range across geographical and jurisdictional spaces, legal spaces. And that it's those spatial configurations that actually permits and encourages the industry, facilitates the industry. So the fact that you've got a border one side, surrogacy is illegal, another side, it's neither legal nor illegal, allows that industry to exist. So it's those jurisdictional differences that promote this industry. It's that lack of reg regulation or minimal regulation. Um, so it's those spaces that really potentiate the industry. And then what we can think of is that the greater those spatial and social distances, the greater the potential economic profitability from the exchange. So what do I mean by that? Um, if I do surrogacy 
in Victoria. The money stays in Victoria. There's not really um, as much possibility for profit by any part of the industry if I stay at home and do surrogacy in, in Victoria. If I move and go to Ukraine, the distance involved, the difficulties involved, the jurisdictional issues involved mean that that exchange becomes more profitable for everyone. So there's something about the movement and the migration involved, both for surrogates, that makes it more profitable. But also social distance, utilising a woman from India or from Laos allows agencies to make more profit out of these exchanges, using a US college graduate or um, someone from Canada, there's less profit to be made. So again, those social distances um, help create those value exchanges and create more profit in the industry. Um, I've previously argued that various categories of mobile people, uh, I've done work on um, cross-border medical care and I have a study with Chi Heng Ling where we've interviewed about 119 uh, people in international hospitals in Malaysia and Thailand as part of the medical travel industry and written about the ways in which mobility is really a strategy that allows these patients access to different forms of social capital and bio-value. So a sick person from Australia isn't worth much to the Australian public health system, but put that sick person in a hospital in Malaysia, they're worth a lot to the Malaysian health system. It allows them to uh, engage in a practice that allows them to improve their bio-value, i.e. they get healthy again and then return back to their home country. So in the case of surrogacy, if we think about those exchanges, for, for in intended parents, transnational mobility is an investment in life itself. So they are investing their $80,000 Australian um, to the formation of a family, the creation of a child, and a bio-value, rather than an investment that's about economic capital for them, it is an investment, a transfer, that allows them to form a family and you know, pursue their desired future. So one of the things I think that we have to think about in these exchanges is the ways in which, as people cross borders, they can increase in bio-value um, and they can also allow for these exchanges and transformations of value into economic value. So I think this allows us to have just a, you know, a slightly new perspective on all forms of these trades in health services and in this case in surrogacy. It's not just an economic venture, but actually it's a whole circuit of um, economic, effective um, and bio-value. Um, and it really is about the conversion of bodily states into economic capital and effective capital. Um, so it's become a very valuable new trade. If you've got a sick body, an infertile body, or a fertile body, this has become a new source of trade. Um, and I think the last bit there basically says what I've just said, but in slightly different words. So I won't say it again. So thank you. And that's the cover of my new book. Thank you.